Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 18, verses 1 through 21. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis and also our Advent series on the shape of the sun. We've been in a sequence of four chapters in which the Lord has appeared to Abraham. In this coming of the Lord to Abraham, we have seen the shape of the second person of the Trinity uh, hints at, foreshadowing the shape he would take at his incarnation, our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 21. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. That Abraham, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our New Testament reading is Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. There are many New Testament readings that would be very appropriate right now. The reason I'm choosing this one is simply this. I'd refer to it regardless, but all of us are thinking judgy thoughts about Sarah right now. We need this passage. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised." Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland." If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we have assembled as your people on the first day of the week to wait upon you. This is the day on which our Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. It is the day on which we have received the pattern of anticipating your presence with us. It is because of that great pattern established in your word that we now humbly pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit as we hear your word proclaimed. We wait upon you, longing to hear your voice and to behold our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would be faithful to do this for us through this, the preaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, In the historic, traditional patterns of the church calendar, Christmas season begins tomorrow. This remains Advent season. And in Advent season, there is a particular emphasis, the reminder that we are those who are living between the Advents. That Christ has come to accomplish our salvation by His death and resurrection. And the pattern of His first coming points yet to the future at His second coming. As the words of Hebrews 11 just beautifully reminded us, we are a pilgrim people who are living between the Advents. 
So many challenges that we face as a church in the world. So many challenges that we face as individual believers need as part of the answer to them the reminder. You are living between the advents. In our texts over these weeks from Genesis, we have seen a pattern of Advent, of God coming to his people, of God in particular appearing to Abraham. And one of the things we have been considering together is how in those appearances to Abraham, we have seen the shape of the sun, the shape of the sun that would be all the more clear at his first Advent, his coming to accomplish salvation. But as we've been doing that, one of the themes I hope you've been noticing, though it has not always been the main theme, but one theme I hope you've been noticing is that as we have seen the shape of the sun in Genesis, pointing forward to the coming of Christ at his birth, at his death and resurrection, so we have also seen the shape of the sun pointing forward to his return. What we have seen happening in these texts is revealing the eternal character of God. It has been telling us, When God comes to his people, this is what happens. Because when God comes to his people, this is who he is. And he does not change. And so these words before us this morning from Genesis 18 speak to us as we look to Christ's second advent. We are a people looking forward to his return. I should say that differently. We are a people who time and again need to be reminded to be looking forward to his return. And Genesis 18 here does exactly that for us. We're going to see this in three parts. First, overall what is happening in this text. A pattern we've seen over and over. God meets with Abraham to renew his covenant and when he does, he shares a meal with him. Three parts of that. First, the shape of the Lord's advent. In verses 1 through 8. Second, the grace of the Lord's advent. In verses 9 through 15. And then thirdly, in verses 16 through 21, the end of our reading, the judgment at the Lord's advent. First, the shape of the Lord's advent. As I've already said, in this account, Genesis 15 through 18, we have a sequence of God appearing repeatedly to Abraham. And the same thing happens again. Verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. One of the, uh, the main things that makes this story, these first eight verses, dramatic is that we know what is going on. The Lord is appearing to Abraham. But that thing that we know from the beginning, because the narrator tells us, is something that Abraham and Sarah are realizing gradually. There are hints at the beginning that they know that something strange is happening. Consider, for example, the language, verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. There's a hint of strangeness. Did they just suddenly appear? You know, everyone's like, well, where did you come from? I mean, he's at the door of his tent. He would have seen someone coming down the road, right? He's in a wilderness area. There's a strangeness to it. Now, perhaps he had dozed off. And they wake him up, they startle him, he lifts his eyes and sees them. In fact, one writer points out when it says the heat of the day, maybe the whole point to that is this when he would be having his, what we would call his siesta, his afternoon nap to make it through the heat. Perhaps. Regardless, there's a strangeness to it. He looks up, behold, three men standing in front of him. 
And isn't there already a strangeness for us as those who know more than Abraham does? The Lord, singular, appears to him, and yet the mode, the way this happens, is three men, three angels, one of them perhaps the angel of the Lord, all sorts of ways to analyze this. Regardless, this is a theophany, a visible manifestation of the Lord's presence with Abraham, and what he sees is three men. Then, the whole middle, section, or the whole middle part of these verses, verses 1 through 8, describe Abraham's lavish hospitality. And the text goes to great details to make sure we have a clear picture of the hospitality. One of the things you want to be asking when the details are uh, strange, when they seem unnecessary, is be asking why. Well, what are those details? Well, first he runs to them and he says in a very modest way what he wants to do. He goes, oh Lord. Actually, first he bows himself to the earth. Now, This would be a normal way of greeting someone you're honoring. He doesn't necessarily know who it is. O Lord, notice in your Bibles the word Lord there is not the all caps version. This is just what you would call someone you are honoring. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now that sequence of three things, bowing, saying, O Lord, don't pass by your servant. That's all ways you would honor someone you're really revering. Doesn't that all feel odd? Does he sense this is someone special? Does he sense perhaps it is the Lord's presence? We don't know. What does he offer them? Let a little water be brought. And then he just describes normal hospitality. Wash your feet. Then he says, while I bring a morsel of bread, a bit of food. And he's downplaying how small it's going to be. The idea is that in the culture, if he had described the lavishness, they would have said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. He makes it sound small to try to persuade them to accept it. That you may refresh yourselves, and after that, you may pass on. The end of verse 5, they say, do as you have said. Then, so he just says, I'm going to get you a bit of food. And then what does he do instead? And part of the point, what's supposed to be brought out, is the contrast. He runs to Sarah, quick, three seahs of fine flour. One seah of fine flour is, I think, I actually don't have this part written down in front of me. I believe it's something like three gallons. The point is, this is a lot of flour to make a whole lot of bread. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepares it quickly. So now we have a whole calf being slaughtered and prepared for this meal. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. One writer says this language of curds and milk probably refers to uh, the, the yogurt that we would find familiar to go with pita and freshly roasted meat. This is a lavish feast being spread. And then we are given this simple moment. The end of verse 8. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now I want you to pause in that moment. In fact, the entire first point of the sermon is just that moment. The Lord has appeared to Abraham. Abraham offers food. Would we not expect the Lord to say, food is not the point, I have something I need to tell you. Covenant promises and then judgment on Sodom that is coming. Could you not imagine all sorts of ways the story could go where the very natural thing would have nothing to do with food happening? 
And in fact, the movement of the story is that Abraham offers it to them and they accept it. This happens when he suggests the plan, and it happens when they bring it before them. And we're told, though they have this message of the promise of the birth of the child through whom salvation will come, the message of judgment upon the wickedness of Sodom, though all of that is going to happen, pause. No, actually, let's not do that yet. And they sit down at the meal. Now, we can make much of how perhaps that feels a bit strange in this particular story. But if we zoom out in the patterns of Scripture, this happens all the time. That when God comes to His people, He shares a meal. That when God comes to His people, there is a meal in His presence. That when God comes to His people, it's almost as though the whole point to it is in fact that experience of fellowship at a meal. Don't move past the pattern. Now, when making decisions about how to preach a text, this is a difficult decision. Is this pattern right here the main point? That's hard to say. It's probably not the main point. But it is something that happens over and over in passages where so often it's not the main point in the individual passage, but the pattern itself is a main point. So I want to take opportunity from these first verses of Genesis 18 to proclaim to you what is a main point of the Scriptures and that this verse beautifully contributes to. When God visits His people, when there is an advent of the Lord, it is to share a meal with His people. It is a promise throughout the Old Testament, or a pattern throughout the Old Testament scriptures of covenant renewal. Time and again, Moses and the 70 elders go up on the mountain and they eat and drink before the Lord. The sacrifices, having the imagery of a meal in the sacrifice being offered, often the people eating the very meal. The feasts, the festivals, the Passover, over and over, God says, When I come to you, you share a meal. This is the shape of the sun. God's intention for history, the reason reality exists, is that fellowship of God with His people. So that at the incarnation, when the same Son, the same Lord, comes into the world, He is known for eating and drinking with His disciples. And what does He give to His disciples before His death? A meal. The bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. So that we have the promise that every time we gather together as God's people around word and sacrament, every time we gather together around this meal, the bread and wine of communion, we are experiencing the Lord's advent. Because what he did when he came to Abraham in Genesis 18 verses 1 through 8 is he paused the whole thing and had a feast. This is what the Lord does at his advent. This is the shape of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the grace of the Lord's advent. We have to walk through this again. The whole exchange of the Lord with Sarah in verses 9 through 15. We need to be surprised by it. Especially if you are familiar with this account. If you've heard these words before. You may indeed be familiar with versions that are really hard on Sarah here. We should not be. 
not simply because Hebrews 11 says that by faith she received what God promised, but Hebrews 11 says that on the basis of this text. For brothers and sisters, the Lord is kind to Sarah. They said to him, they, isn't that fun? Sometimes it's the Lord singular, sometimes it's they. The text seemingly can't get it straight. Or is there complexity in who God is? They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. So the Lord's going to speak, and up till now, when he's been giving promises, they've usually been through Abraham. But now he wants to make sure Sarah hears this. And though Sarah is not there at this moment, he's signaling concern for where Sarah is. And by the way, here's another surprise for Abraham that these men are maybe not, or maybe more than he perhaps thinks, is that they know his wife's name. Now the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, verse 11 here, the narrator is very careful to make sure we know that whatever is about to happen in Sarah's reaction is grounded in reality. She's not being foolish. She's not being crazy. And the text is pausing to say, just so you know, here's the actual truth of the matter. This is not Sarah's thoughts. This is not Abraham's thoughts. This is the narrator speaking. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Here's the point. What's about to be said isn't just unlikely. It's not possible. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure Laugh to herself. Don't assume a fist-shaking laughter. Don't assume, oh no, the Lord can't do this. Imagine a laughter that is sad. A laughter that has been waiting for years and years, decades, for the particular human good gift that she had desired and now has been waiting for years in response to a covenant promise given by the Lord and has not seen it happen. Can we all imagine ways, not shaking the fist at God, can we all imagine ways truly intermixed with faith that one might laugh to oneself? Could this really happen? <laughs> Is this even possible? Like seriously, after all of this time, and what we ought to be struck by then is the kindness, the gentleness of the Lord's response. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, hold on, pause? <laughs> now Abraham and Sarah know something's going on here, right? Because remember, she's not there. She laughs to herself, not out loud, but he knows she has laughed. Now they know this is the covenant messenger. In fact, they've already known it because the language of a birth pronouncement just is the announcement that the Lord alone makes, and it is the announcement that had been made previously, right? So at this point, they know now this is the Lord's messenger. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What does the Lord do? 
Does he say, what's her problem? No, he says, listen, why, why, why is she laughing? She doesn't need to. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. The Lord can do this. He assures, he comforts, he reconfirms his promise. And then he says, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, she was afraid. Why? Well, because she's realizing, oh, wow, wait a minute. This is not just someone saying random things. This is the presence of the Lord speaking these words. She is embarrassed. She's afraid to have the Lord knew that. Why would she be afraid? Maybe this is the kind of thing the Lord strikes you dead for, right? She has every reason to be afraid. What is the Lord's response? Simply, oh, you... You did laugh, and, and, and he, he is, all he's done throughout is reassured her that what he has said is going to happen. What I want to set before you is there is a gentleness, a kindness to how the Lord responds to her. And then we come to Hebrews 11, and the summary statement of the New Testament proclaiming these words is that Abraham and Sarah together are the exemplars of faith. That Abraham and Sarah together set before us what the life of faith is. So that Hebrews 11 says specifically of Sarah that it is by faith that she conceived and received what the Lord promised. The Lord's ways, what the Lord does, reveals who the Lord is. What the Lord says and does with his covenant people reveal eternally who God is as the creator. And what you have in these words is a glorious, beautiful announcement of who your creator is, of who the Son is, who would come into the world in the incarnation as our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace of the Lord's advent. Now, I want to give you that general, clear announcement. We're all experiencing the text in particular ways. We all have particular circumstances. What God does reveals who God is. But I also want to do a little bit of theology here for you. The Lord's advent is gracious Because it is covenantal. Because the Lord comes to Abraham and Sarah as the one who has already brought them into covenant relationship with himself. And he comes to them to meet with them as an expression of, for the sake of, that covenant relationship. This is why before he said anything, he was like, sure, yeah, let's pause for that meal. They feast. Because that meal, that feasting, is actually the portrayal, the experience of what the whole thing is about anyway. All right, we say, the Lord's advent is gracious because it is covenantal. So let us then learn of that way of the covenant from this text, from these verses, the grace of that covenant relationship from Genesis 18, verses 9 through 15. It is a covenant relationship in which the faith that truly receives the promises is imperfect. Say it again. It is a covenant relationship 
in which the faith that truly receives the promises is imperfect. We knew this already. Genesis 15, Abram doubted repeatedly. He asked the Lord, how can this be? Sarah here laughs to herself. And the Lord's response is simply to further reassure. The faith that receives the promises is imperfect. So, dear sister, dear brother, when you are painfully aware that your faith is imperfect, that's okay. When you are painfully aware that your faith is imperfect, that's how it's always been in God's way with his people. We are mere creatures. Even set aside the issue of sin, we cannot fit in our minds the glory of all that God has revealed and proclaimed to us. We spend a lifetime growing in our knowledge of it, our understanding of it. And one of the ways we experience that growing is with an awareness of where I am right now is not where I want to be. Right? It could be stronger. It could be greater. Well, right there is the acknowledgement. It's imperfect faith. But more than that, we are sinners. Can we say that in Sarah's laughing to herself, there was sin involved? Not just acknowledgement of her human weakness, but the reality of truly trusting to rest in God's word. Absolutely. Very possible. Indeed, it is likely. And it is the truth, the same thing for us. And yet, as we saw, in, saw so clearly throughout this sequence of chapters, it is precisely this faith that the Lord uses as the means by which his promise is received. For some reason, and I have all sorts of theories, those theories aren't the point, we have trouble letting that get through to us. Something has happened. I don't know if it's in recent history, if it's generational, if it's some theologically skewed thing within the Reformed tradition. I don't know what it is, but something has happened where an emphasis on faith so often feels legalistic and makes us then think it's about the faith and then has us always analyzing our faith and analyzing our obedience to figure out if we really are truly believers or not. And then any time we plunge into a time of darkness, and by the way, it's dark out this time of year. And we have our own, the physical effects of that and our own faithlessness and our own sin all intermingled together. And every time that happens and we realize how weak we are, we turn that into doubting whether or not we're really trusting God at all. But the scriptures are so clear from beginning to end that true faith, that faith that receives what is promised is human faith and it is sinful faith. So what do we do with this? Well, the whole point is that the faith that receives what is promised is faith in God. It's not faith in itself. Faith looks away from itself to the Lord. And so what does the Lord say to Sarah? What is his message? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The mode of comfort is not, man, you'd better analyze your faith and make sure you've really got it straight. The mode of comfort is, hear the Lord's promise, nothing is too great for him. The way the Lord announces his promise turns her attention to him, 
to what he is saying. And this is what he is doing for you through his word, through his sacrament, in your fellowship together. He is turning your attention to himself precisely because your faith is weak. I don't know, does it sound it's like, it's, it's like, oh no, God can't be that nice to me. You know, what, what is it? Something about us doesn't want to just be okay with that. God knows your faith is weak. He knows you're a sinner. And he tells you nothing is too great for him. And that is true even when you're not trusting that like you ought to be. Do you get the power of that? It's true that he can do what he has promised you even when you're not resting in that truth like you should be. Because it's not ultimately you holding on to him, it is him holding on to you. And the very existence of your faith, however weak, however imperfect, is that gift of God. That faith that is imperfect and receives God's promises is a faith that looks to the future. Notice that this is the, the very thing that God is doing, of course, for Abraham and Sarah. He's told them about the land, about descendants, about being a blessing to the nations. Indeed, we have a great affirmation of that in verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Looking forward to that great future when all nations would be included. In fact, Hebrews 11 told us that um, Abraham and Sarah, that all those heroes of the faith, they knew that God's promises were about that something more all along. That they weren't just about an individual child, they weren't just about a plot of land, but that they were about ultimately God's purposes in Christ and in the bringing of the nations and the new creation. But that looking to the future aspect of faith brings us to another thing we need to consider. Third this morning from our text, the judgment of the Lord's advent. The text takes an ominous turn. Now up to this point, it's had a downright delightful, festive mood to it. A feast being enjoyed in the presence of this one who is the Lord visiting his people. Sarah's weak faith being strengthened by the Lord's word. Verse 16, then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. We've already been told in the story that Sodom was a place of great wickedness. There was the account of Abram and Lot dividing, and Lot went and lived uh, closer to Sodom, and we were given the ominous note there that uh, the wickedness of Sodom was very great. This is the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, present in the world. And he looks down towards Sodom. But there's an interesting pause here. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? I say pause because if you have your Bibles open, chapter 19 is going to be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? <laughs> there's a pause though. That's why we know there's a pause. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So first, the Lord looks to Sodom, then pause. I got to talk to Abraham now. Why? Because Abraham is the one through whom all nations will be blessed. And I have given Abraham this good life of holiness and righteousness. By the way, a theological footprint, or footprint, theological footnote. This is another verse that disproves the idea that there's something different going on with Abraham versus with the giving of the law through Moses. God tells Abraham that the whole point, what he is doing, is that they might live in the way of righteousness. Now, that law will become more clear in the time of Moses, but it was always God's intention with Abraham. He pauses. So then the Lord says to Abraham, and here we didn't read the rest of the chapter, this is inviting Abraham to intercede for Sodom. And you'll have the whole sequence of Abraham saying, because Lot is there, says, you know, if there's this many righteous people, will you, will you withhold judgment? Will you not judge? And then the number gets smaller and smaller. Abraham intercedes for Sodom. Then the Lord said, so there's that pause. Now we turn back to the ominousness, the ominous quality of the text. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The creator of the universe is present. The one who gives to his people the life of righteousness and holiness. But when he comes at his advent, he now encounters sin and wickedness. And sin and wickedness cannot be in the presence of the holy, righteous creator of the universe. And here then is the ominous turn. What must happen must be judgment. And the reality of judgment is inevitable. We, we sense it in the text, not just because we know the way the story goes, though we do know the way the story goes, but because this is the creator of the universe in the presence of that which is most twisting and distorting his good creation. Indeed, if you think of it that way, which you must, the fearfulness of the text only increases. So to be sure, God is inviting Abraham to intercede. Through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. But how? The wickedness must be judged. It has to be judged. How, what, on what basis could Abraham even intercede? There is no one righteous enough to withstand the judgment. In fact, God says in beautifully positive words that he has given Abraham this calling to teach his children righteousness and justice. And that is good and positive. It's a gift of God's grace. But how? There is running throughout Genesis this tension, this reality of God's graciousness side by side with the necessity of judgment. And in that combination, we have what many have called a cross-shaped logic. A, a reasoning, a combining of truths, actually ultimately a single truth that finds its ultimate expression at the cross of Jesus Christ. That yes, when God comes, it is for judgment. Judgment. And that 
the reason that that coming for judgment can also be a coming for grace, as he says through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. The way it can be both is that at Christ's advent, the coming of God would be a coming for judgment, only it would be a judgment upon himself. So that the judgment that is required, that this text makes so clear is required, ultimately falls upon him. So that the son, well, we can just say it. So the son who is speaking in this text, both of grace and of judgment, is the son who in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ would resolve that problem, the seeming problem in the text. The shape of God's advent is of judgment and mercy at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we said a moment ago that for Abraham and Sarah, this is a looking to the future. It is the same for us as his people. We await the second advent. And this text, this Genesis 18 verses 1 through 21, tells us what the shape of that advent will be. All the more clear in our Lord Jesus Christ, but actually in a way that adds dimensions to how we hear and see and behold what our, who our Lord Jesus Christ is. That it's not just that Christ explains this text, but this text explains our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we can say, as you look forward to the second advent, to the coming of the Lord, there is good reason to hear in that a hint of the ominous. To have an initial thought of that being something that would be fearful. We are sinners and the coming of the creator of the universe has every reason to awaken within us that sense of seriousness. But then we see in our text the shape of the sun. That we await as judge, in the beautiful language of our catechism, we await as judge the one who has already stood trial in our place. Hebrews 9 verse 28 so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the promise that you await as judge the one who has already stood trial in your place so that you might wait with eager expectation for the salvation of our God. But this text also helps us as we consider what that means to be waiting eagerly for him. Hebrews 9.28, to save those who are eagerly waiting. Well, if you want to, you can smuggle in all the legalism you want right there. Are you eagerly waiting? I forget all the time. I turn toward other things all the time. I fail to desire it as I should all the time. And so here, Genesis 18 stands to say, here is what God does for you then now, is he meets with you every Lord's Day to keep you turned toward him. He meets with you in worship, in word and sacrament, around this meal, in fact, echoes of Genesis 18, to keep you turned toward him. And he says, this is what it looks like to eagerly wait for him. It's to not be as eager as you want to be. 
And it's to have the Lord help you grow in that eagerness. Now you know, none of this in any way, shape, or form is an excuse to turn away. The whole point is that what matters is the being turned toward God. It is the faith that looks to Him away from itself. Not the faith that says, who cares? But neither the faith that says, it's all about my faith. It is the faith that looks to this promise. Yes, take a glance at yourself if you need to. Be reminded of your weakness. And then look to the gracious God of the covenant who meets with you in worship to strengthen that faith. And then finally, what is that future that we look forward to? What is it that God turns your faith toward? Well, we said a while ago now that the shape of the Lord's advent when he comes to his people is the shape of a meal. This too is what God sets before you. Our Lord Jesus Christ at his first advent said, Matthew 8 verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. When Christ warns Israel of the thing they are in danger of rejecting, the way he sums up that thing they are in danger of rejecting is of people from all the nations reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, what you're in danger of rejecting, Israel, is all the nations be included in that feast at Genesis 18. And so the Lord sets before you the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says, this is the shape of his advent. The Lord comes to have a meal with you. The Lord comes to enjoy fellowship with you around a table The great feast of the Messianic banquet, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It speaks of the overcoming of death, the wiping away of tears. And then here is the answer to all of that eager waiting that is imperfect. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen us as we seek to wait with eager expectation for the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.